0: Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the February 5th, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Happy Lunar New Year, everybody. Article 5, Convention Watch, no new developments. Still trying to keep it though on everybody's radar. Today, UCI second year law student, James Lamb, will bring for our consideration real power amidst the problematic, persistent aspect of tribal politics. At the second segment, later on, Ani Zonfeld is going to be, as the founder of Muslims for Progressive Values, will return to the show to post us on her organization's celebration of life. It's their fourth annual taking place this Sunday in L.A. and how she sees America creeping toward theocracy. Her quotes. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is UCI law student James Lamb. As a second year student, James recently made congratulations, made the semifinals of UCI's Law's moot court competition and currently is a research assistant. As co-president of the Society for Public Policy and Discourse at UCI Law, James brought former Congresswoman Gabriella Giffords and Captain Mark Kelly to UCI to promote common sense gun control measures in the lead up to last fall's midterm elections where I first got to to hear James. He was a judicial extern at the Honorable Andre Barot, Jr. of the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California. He worked at the Minority Inclusion Project in Connecticut, designed to prepare and promote people of color to join the governing boards of Connecticut nonprofits. Yahoo! He blogged as a staff writer at the Nerds of Color and cut his political teeth in years ago as a campaign manager for a state representative campaign in Tucson, Arizona. Raised in Virginia, and that's going to be a figure in our discussion, James went on to complete his BA in government at Cornell University. James is currently working on a law journal article that examines the continued utility of neutral principles in constitutional law with a multi ethnic, multicultural, multiracial society into which we shall liberally tap for today's interview. James joins me in studio for today's interview. Welcome to Ask a Leader, James Lamb.
1: Claudia, thank you for having me.
0: Well I I'm so delighted to have you. You're the man of the hour, the moment, and for, and all the way into the rest of our body politic participation. So I'm so glad that you're here. Well, I've, I'd i like to see us, we're, we're going to start with the most general themes, then on to how specific office holders demonstrate these points. So as I and want to talk about, sometimes there's those necessary and sufficient tests. Necessary, get you get the process going but sufficient is where there's mastery of an outcome it you know it must something must take place and so I want to put those and how they relate to power and as uh, the the tremendous reading list that you gave me that I'm gonna pass on to the listeners in the course of this interview is as in power and how it does or doesn't galvanize uh, african-american support without delivering for them so uh, as you say In preparation for this interview, racial voting is not useful. Let's talk about that in general terms, and then we'll go into some of those specifics of electeds and how they're performing.
1: Well, the best way to start off this is to recognize the history. In this country, we have noticed that every single time African Americans promote political prescriptions to benefit themselves, whether it's Reaching for voting rights during the civil rights movement or today, um, alterations in our criminal justice system, we have seen pushback, backlash, uh, opposition, let's say, from vast swaths of white America. Uh, one of the difficulties of the uh, 2007 2008 race was that, in large measure, we had this untried, unknown phenomenon in Barack Obama. Uh, Reaching for the highest office in the land. And it wasn't until white support thereabouts jumped onto uh you know his you know supporting his campaign after Iowa and in part after New Hampshire that he became a viable candidate among African Americans because of this entire phenomenon. We know as people of color in this society that without white American support. Excuse me. There's no real way to make sure that the political prescriptions we're looking for actually happen. The the book is on this has already been written. That's Paul Frimer. We've, we've you know we're going to discuss that in a little bit. But the general notion.
0: Paul Frimer's uneasy alliances,
1: as you've told me. Exactly. Um, his general perspective in that text is about electoral capture. There's one party that's willing to speak to your interests. Uh, as a racialized politi- political group, and it's another party that totally ignores your interests. The downside in our two-party system is that that means no one actively competes for your vote, no one competes for your interests, and therefore no one competes for you by virtue of trying to provide the political prescriptions you're looking for.
0: That's the sufficient part of the, the, of those two tests. Necessary to be involved in the political process, in the electoral process, but delivering is that sufficient test? It's just not maddeningly is not arriving.
1: That's correct, but let's remember what the problem here is structurally speaking. Yeah. People of color are prevented from actually seeing the kind of uh uh success they want. I mean, take take a look at it this way. The difficulty is that if you happen to be uh interested in in, in immigration reform in this society because various parts of your extended family or people in your community have gone through the difficulties of a, a broken immigration system. Which party can actually provide that for you? Well, we've seen both parties try and fail for over a decade in recent terms, even though there's been reforms in the 1980s and the like that never actually dealt with the problem. Why is that? Because no one's competing for the votes of undocumented people, period. Until they become part of the body politic, no one has to care in Washington, no one has to care in state houses, no one has to care, period. It's breaking that dynamic of the inability of the, of the two-party system to actively compete for the votes of people of color that is literally the 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 foundation for the problem we have today
0: i'm wanting to ask if the zero-sum gain problem is also it's a it's an abstraction though that it, but it's always interfering with making it into compete making those interests part of a campaign and a body politic
1: Yes and no. The problem is who perceives the zero sum game. Yeah. That's not people of color, that's white people.
0: No, that's right. That's what I mean. It's sort right. of like if it's never identified, it's it clobbered me and my listeners always know I bring it up. It clobbered me in 2016. It was never identified, but it was always hovering over any debate all the way through the presidential debates in the fall.
1: We should recognize two things. One, 2016 is not an aberration. In no No. sense does the election of Donald Trump represent an aberration from uh, voting patterns of white Americans generally. Since the 1980s, roughly 60-odd percent, give or take a few points in every election, white voters have gone for the Republican. That happened here. The difference between, say, 1980, 1984, and, say, 2008 or 2012 was that In previous years, you could actually use 60-odd percent of the white vote to win the election. What John McCain and Mitt Romney learned is that that doesn't work anymore. What ended up happening in 2016 with Hillary Clinton versus uh, Donald Trump is that in large measure, the white vote really did go for the Republican, but not enough— Men and women. Men and women, but not enough support on the left actually congealed around Hillary Clinton. And that was in large measure not a fault of Hillary Clinton or those voters. I want to be very clear yes, about that yes. because people of color are oftentimes blamed for Hillary Clinton's loss. Let's be very clear about it. The notion of a tepid support for her in spite of her long history is was used in some respects as like sort of the reason why she lost, along with her campaign's inability to support um, you know, middle-income Americans in the Midwest. The problem there is it's not about the voters. It's not about Hillary Clinton. The problem is the lack of synergy between what the left wanted and the candidate we received, in large measure, because of these same issues involving electoral capture. We see this most directly, most recently, in the midterm elections. We watched uh, Beto O'Rourke, Andrew Gillum, and, and any number of other people. Stacey Abrams in Georgia, for example, fail to win their statewide races. Two of those races can be explained by the disinterest in southern states of white voters voting for a person of color to be you know, the governor of their state. So that's a participation. That's a participation concern. Right. But that doesn't actually get addressed until you deal with the voter suppression issues, until you deal right. with gerrymandering issues, which, again, aren't possible if both parties are not interested in competing for African-American votes.
0: So we'll get into the voter suppression and the, continue with this reading list. But we're, so you illustrated as we're talking about the, you know, in general terms, how tribal voting is problematic. And so maybe you could break down like you did for me off, off the microphone, uh, what different ways that, not the usual type of tribal voting for people to really consider all of those factors as we go into specific electeds
1: performance. Listeners should imagine tribal voting to revolve around the idea of voting for someone based on an immutable characteristic you might share with them. Uh, Voting for a white woman because you're a white woman. Voting for a black man because you're a black man. The question becomes how much that type of voting pattern actively affects change for you and your community. It's very clear that for people of color, the notion of a tribalistic vote... uh, I mean using that term to even describe it is problematic. But we should very we should be clear about something. It is tribal voting that elected Donald Trump. It is tribal voting that elected people like Tom Tancredo at what at various points. It's tribal voting that keeps Steve King in office. Yeah. It's not In a, uh, Iowa. In Iowa. No matter how much these people flirt with or openly espouse white nationalism, the question becomes can I see my interests supported by this figure? But if you look at it in those terms in sort of a cost benefit analysis, it might mean that as a voter, you might openly evaluate whether or not this person's stands, this person's uh, positions on issues actually help you. That is a different concept than the con- what I'm talking about with tribal voting. Most recently down here in the last midterm election, you had uh, a Democratic primary with the eventual winner, Katie Porter, going up against uh, Dave Minn, both of them UCI law professors in great standing. Um, shout out to UCI law. Yeah. But let's be very clear. The women who voted for Katie Porter, I have a hard time imagining, did so per, you know, based on the issues alone. I think it was very easy in Orange County to look at who was on, you know, on the ballot there and decide to go with the person who most typified Orange County. I'm new here. I don't pretend to know this area very well. I'm still trying to learn. And again, there's nothing wrong with voting for somebody who reflects your interests. But if you've got two corporate Democrats on the table and you decide to go with the white one because you happen to be white, that speaks to something else.
0: Or because it happened to be female.
1: Or they happen to be female, or they happen to be any number of things, or they happen to be someone who doesn't reflect difference in your mind. Because when I looked at the voting in, say, Florida, for example, in that gubernatorial race, Andrew Gillum gained fewer votes than the uh, than the Democrat in the, senator- you know, the senatorial who what, race. know, what Caucasian? Yeah. Right now, one can imagine down-ticket voting not providing the same kind of numbers but there were definitely democrats in florida who suggested that i could vote for a white democrat for senate and couldn't vote for a black democrat for governor that speaks to the kind of problems that have plagued people of color especially african-american candidates since antiquity when i was growing up in the nineteen eighties running around in my community trying to support l douglas wilder to be the first black governor since reconstruction in virginia Yeah, in virginia like we called it the Wilder effect where the polls suggest that he was going to do much much better and the
0: Bradley effect
1: here and the Bradley effect here that's right in in LA what that means is that people even on the left are willing to give tacit support maybe even money to candidates of color but don't always support them when it comes down to uh actually voting in the booth that talks about tribal voting that we need to get rid of so
0: Part of the reading list is "Brown Is the New White" uh, by Steve Phillips, and we're we're talking here, uh, we're we're moving into that area. I mean, the, both books cover a great deal of this this uh, body politic space. Uh, "Brown Is the New White," written by Steve Phillips, dealing with the misdirected spending priorities of the Democratic Party. So, I guess um, I'm, we're we're hopping around a lot of different electives, but that's because we have so many to call out and illustrate so many complicated and essential points here. I guess uh, you were saying in preparation for this that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez representing a progressive, a Latino congressional district in the New York City area that it remains to be seen whether her rhetoric is going to translate into, back to what we are talking about before, this whole power aspect. Will she deliver? And so what are what are ways we can monitor i mean she's she's got the whole social media she's got that down she's got lots of she's got she's passing the necessary but for her to pass a sufficient test to carry the water and transnavigate the whole the, right. the whole racial divide so what what are we supposed to see in her performance that's actually delivering and showing she understands what power is and is using power effectively
1: we should recognize the degree to which um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez is effective may not necessarily translate into the, you know, the, the, the metrics we should use may not translate into actionable, like, say, new laws passed. Um, you're a freshman congressperson. You're one of 435. They need you in the party to support a number of things, but you're still the lowest person on the totem pole, quote, unquote. Um, that might be unfortunate language. I apologize for it is. Let's just be honest about it though, she has no power yet. And what's more uh to the point, she's representing a majority minority district in the Bronx. We have examples of representatives from majority minority districts who, like Ocasio Cortez, are strong on rhetoric, strong on social media, and get very little done. They're called the Congressional Black Caucus and they've been yeah, less really? than useful for really? a generation. Um, And and not without trying. I won't pretend that they aren't useful for their districts. But what I'm talking about, again, with tribal voting is the degree to which these kinds of figures become these ossified power centers, and yet the economic circumstances of their communities never change. I lived in Tucson, Arizona for seven years while my wife was in graduate school. I ran a state house race out there. South Tucson had been the the congressional district of Raúl Grijalva, the like one of the most like lauded progressives in the House for easily a decade, if not more.
0: Which is which is a, gets to be veteran status. You're pretty seasoned with ten years under your belt.
1: Exactly. Can
0: start getting things done.
1: You start getting things done, and yet the economic concerns of South Tucson hadn't changed in the seven years I was there, and certainly hadn't. You know, I, I would venture to guess. Aren't different now. Still, you have young people in rusted old cars going nowhere and doing nothing. Still, you have like dilapidated industries and you know call centers and you know all manner of of, of economic malaise in a place that it doesn't have to be. Now, it's unfair to blame Raúl Giraldo personally for all of that, but you elect somebody to deal with your interests as a, in the total person to deliver, to deliver, and some of that is delivering on the economics. And when progressives get into office and make a bunch of noise about being progressives and yet the economic circumstances of their districts don't change, we have a right in those districts to say, no, this isn't working for me. Now, it remains to be seen if AOC, if Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is going to be that kind of politician. But we should also notice that by virtue of how she won the office, defeating a a well-respected, long-term Democratic incumbent, she's ruffled some feathers. And I'm glad to see that. I I honestly have no, I take no issue with that. I'm not Claire McCaskill finding trauma in a person who is, you know, winning against Democrats to try to support what the Democratic populations want. But we should be very clear that the measure of success is in the long term, and the measure of success has to include some economic variables. If stuff doesn't change in the Bronx, we'll know in 10 years.
0: Well, I just have a little personal data point to offer. Uh, having been on the Hill last week in Washington, D.C., and popped into her office, and all, these freshman representatives have not had a chance to move in yet because of the shutdown impeding their progress. So, But they're on the shelf the bookshelf in her office is Piketty's capital so she's got that on her radar so let's see whether this will with some sort of a political savvy can organize around de- delivering some power so that but i thought that was that was one little thing to note
1: it's a it's a good thing to notice she's doing the proper reading i guess i guess yeah. part of the concern though yeah. is that we don't know if nancy pelosi is we don't know if you know, yeah you know, Jim Clyburn happens to be doing that reading as well. Her job as a representative is going to be to also encourage her fellows to support the kind of leftist perspectives that she espouses. And the question is, can she make that type of leftist thinking on economics mainstream? If she can, then that works in favor of the notion that the party will be shifting towards speaking to the interests of people of color.
0: Well, when I the what I've observed. It seems like she's trying to thread the, the, that 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 nuanced message in there that there have been so many misinterpretations of what she means by the marginal the income tax and she keeps coming back to sort of to, to teach people what what that marginal income tax really means when it's get gets distorted by her interviewer and others so it's it's she's I think she's on the task it's but it's still it's an it's so it's a new day well my guest for those of you who've just joined us is second year law student James Lamb having one of many needed conversations about power and whether and how the needle might be moving with respect to race as we proceed past the recent midterm elections well, I know everybody's leaning, waiting for us to bring up Virginia and Governor Northam's performance. We could go back to 1984 and then a, a, a coverage about he's partying like it's 1884. So uh, what would what are we missing? What what is the not getting covered? Because there, there's been a lot of discussion about his. Himming and hawing about his conduct in the past so let's let's talk about his clinging to his position and his meandering defense which keeps digging him into a deeper
1: hole there's a couple different issues here one of those issues involves the degree to which white politicians navigating race are always encouraged to tell us that they can start a conversation when we don't need a conversation. What we need is action. And the action here would be uh, for this particular politician to resign. Not because he donned blackface over 30 years ago. Honestly, as a, a, a person born in Virginia, a black man, I don't care. (laughs) Really? You
0: don't care? I
1: I really don't. That's not the point. It's the The tone deafness that we care about. The point is the the attempt to explain those actions, which are clearly supported only by white nationalism, only supported by white supremacy, reflect a complete indifference toward his ability as a politician to speak to the interests and support the interests of his own constituents. The reasonable uh, question to ask from this incident is now that we know that you were in blackface in 1984 and you don't have a a reasonable explanation for that action, can you serve as the uh, top political figure in the state of Virginia, which has always been uh, very significantly African-American? The answer to that is clearly no. So he should resign. But we should be careful of two things. One, it is not acceptable to su- to suggest, as Northam has done, right. that in the 1980s, that was essentially acceptable behavior. It may have been acceptable in the cadre of white maildom happening at the uh, Eastern Virginia Medical School uh, at the time, which speaks to the degree to which institutions like that should be more diversified, and we should actively pursue public policy that will diversify those spaces. It's it's also telling that in an age where the federal society was rampant, where originalism was of you know the, the day in congr- in constitutional jurisprudence, that the the wages of that sin yeah. are blackface costumes and neo confederate imagery and this open ended lampooning of black people. So that's one thing. Unfortunately, uh, the second thing is playing all this stuff out in the court of public opinion in our social media age oftentimes doesn't help much either what are we left with well now we have this uh this unfortunate story about the lieutenant governor justin uh uh fairfax right which again whether or not you believe it isn't relevant the only point here is there was a clear opportunity before that story broke to suggest that all We had to do in the Democratic Party in Virginia was have the governor resign, and then the African American lieutenant governor could take over, and the story would be over. The continued drumbeat of a Democratic Party that is literally indifferent to the plight of black people and to basic respect for other humans uh, could just go away. Now, even if it does go away and it will likely go that route, we're still left with these open ended questions that are literally based on allegations alone. Like, that's uh, to my mind the politics of personal destruction that has gone against both of those elected officials is difficult for me. Yeah. And there's one other thing uh, now that I just, I just remembering it. The other problem here is that African-Americans elected him. (laughs) Like uh, governor Northam is in office on the backs of black people. We are told in the African-American community since antiquity, since we were able to meaningfully gain the vote as a uh, consequence of the civil rights movement, that the way to secure our best political interests was to vote for white people. We support you. That is the, ne- the the general perspective here. It doesn't necessarily happen as much in reverse. And when it does happen in reverse, we send to statewide offices, even national offices, the most palatable black people that white people can respect palatable for not our interests, but yours. Now, there's
0: the sufficient test again exactly. not, it's
1: not getting passed exactly but what has that done for african-american interests? if we're if we're again electing people with this sort of like racist imagery in their past they themselves can't explain at all in a coherent or effective manner then we're being asked again to support people who don't have our best interests at heart and will and no matter what good they have done in order to sort of work for the people of virginia honestly can't be entrusted with securing interest for us so
0: i guess i'd like to find out i mean it's really it's not a pie in the sky it's essential work that needs to be done so james where do you carve out the best possible space i mean you talked about how there's the footing was lost with northam and with fairfax but where what Give us a place. Give us an arena where we get down to the conversation that is getting derailed all the time. Where do we do it? I mean, we're here on this show, but we're we This is a. I don't know how many people even listen to this, but so give us your your like the most, uh, the most meaningful, um, so
1: the most meaningful arena to yes. my mind would be, honestly, the Supreme Court. And I know it's, in a post-Kavanaugh world, hard to imagine that. But there was a certain point in my life where I said that electoral politics would not be the answer, that it was simply not possible to work through our current system and pretend that you were going to provide real justice for anyone. Uh, You know, I'll tell you a story. I remember in Tucson, this must have been 2006, 2007, going door-to-door canvassing for a Democratic candidate and doing voter registration work. And I knock on this one door, this dilapidated old house oh. in in uh, South Tucson. And at the door comes this young woman. Easily somewhere in her early 20s, most likely in her teens. She's She's got one toddler sort of in her arm. She has a, a, a little baby at her feet, pulling at her skirt, playing with these primary colored keys. And I start going into the spiel about, her political rights and, and the vote and she needs to go ahead and like you know register to vote so she needs to secure uh, basic change for her for herself, her family, her people. And she's reading through the voter registration form and she gets to party affiliation. And she looks up with these humongous brown eyes. Okay. And she tells me directly which one is the party for poor people. Yeah, well. And at that moment everything crystallized. Because I could not tell her the Democratic Party was the party for poor people. I know that might upset some people. I know that might upset listeners, but it's true. We have two corporate parties serving American citizens today. Two of them. Well, I also I wanted to uh, lay, to
0: frame that she understood her interests. That was a very sophisticated cognitive test she registered as. I want my interest, I'm not... She, she was working past any kind of default she might have been listening to over the years. So it's a, it's a very remarkable thing, and that's why I, I, canvassing gets so much done. So what were you able to say to her?
1: Well, see, that's the point. You couldn't tell her. I No, I told her flat out. I told her... I, was, I, couldn't, I couldn't walk away from that stoop suggesting right. the lie. Yeah, yeah, But what did you say? So I told her, the only party that works for people like you is the one you start for yourself. Is the way you can carve out meaningful change for you. You can work within parties to do that. You can work outside of parties to do that. But don't let anybody tell you that somehow, in order to support your interests, you have to support someone else's. Because your interests aren't going to be like everyone else's. And that's what brought me to the law. In essence, constitutional law is the space where we really hash out many of these concerns today because we're unwilling to deal with them in the electoral arena where they. But belong. how
0: are you going to bring the Supreme Court though to take that up?
1: Well, you know, we've already I mean, had the do model. Do we not
0: write letters as constituents to say, by the
1: way? Well, it takes cases. That, I won't pretend otherwise. Right. But, but I can definitely suggest the following. Wow. So we had a model from the civil rights movement, the desegregation cases, any number of other cases that were around, how we're actually going to, in some respects, divvy the pie. Edward Bloom, a conservative activist behind many of the recent cases against affirmative action, has right. used that same playbook. It's a playbook open to everyone. The students for Fair Admissions against Harvard—the the recent case where Asian American, uh, mostly conservative Chinese Americans—are sort of fighting against Harvard, and by virtue of Harvard, like the entire affirmative action system in this country in higher education, that case is around whether a a a minority group that has actually gone through meaningful, serious discrimination in the in society—Chinese Americans uh, and Asian Americans generally—have been harmed by a system of affirmative action. Now. The scholarship on the subject says no. We'll see what the Supreme Court has to say. Yeah, but It will be interesting. But the yep. important point here is that where electoral politics has failed us, we've increasingly seen people of color reach toward the courts and conservatives reach toward the courts to sort of fill in that gap. I would prefer we dealt with these sorts of things in the electoral arena but our electoral arena has been compromised when the donor class has more influence over the candidates we get to choose from than everyday Americans we have to understand that's not justice i mean the greatest trick our country ever pulled was in convincing americans that justice exists
0: but i'm puzzled you're bringing up the supreme court because we're we're seeing a sort of a ratcheting downward of the uh, democratic values in the electoral infrastructure. And as you, another book and for everybody to take uh, under is The One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy by Carol Anderson. She's written other really am- amazing things that we all need to be reading, is that it, it's rolling back every possible voting sort of uh, an access, avenue toward voting. And so I I guess I can't, I'm I'm a little incredulous that you think that that the Supreme Court and other packed courts on at lower uh, jurisdictions are are a means for getting that conversation out there, unless it's um, critiquing what they're doing. But that's no not moving the needle for more democratic values to be realized.
1: I think the difference is that with electoral politics, no one has to actually explain what they mean. No one actually has to come to a reasonable like explanation of. Where we're coming from, why we're trying to do what we're doing. Donald Trump, right now, is staking his entire presidency on the notion of building a wall with our southern border that is a a cost boondoggle, makes no uh, actual national security sense, and has easily been a defeated concept if anyone's ever followed El Chapo. So, yes, you can dig a tunnel under a wall. So, the point here is there's easy ways to understand how politicians can't possibly provide reason explanations for their own actions in the courts you have to and the degree to which the uh... supreme court has failed to provide reasonable explanations they can be criticized trump v hawaii is a great example of this in that case the, the, the travel ban exactly the explanation around authorizing like sort of the last one doesn't really work. It doesn't really make sense. And you can be criticized for that. But the reason I say we have to be much more cognizant about the courts, ultimately, is that when you're dealing with a case, you're dealing with the actual reasoning animating the issues at present. So that's a conversation. That's the conversation. Now, it's not going to be the conversation people like to have. Disparate impact is a real thing, and a lot of the conservatives on the court don't want to sort of deal with the way in which people of color are disproportionately harmed by public policy. But they have to explain why they have that indifference. There's, there's a great case on this. If you look at Virginia v. Black, getting back to Virginia, okay, Virginia v. Black was a case uh, where we dealt with cross burning. It was an O'Connor decision, and in the cross burning case, there was a difference uh, carved out by the plurality between. Cross burning with intent to intimidate others, and cross burning generally, and that that difference was carved out so that uh, O'Connor could suggests that people who wanted to say go off in the woods and burn a cross to you know I don't know no
0: one's harmed out there no
1: one's harmed out no, there was her no
0: argument. one's intimidated yeah okay but right. on somebody's
1: front lawn uh, someone's front lawn now we've harmed now he's harmed severely someone, this direct object now that was the logic she was using what do so, you think. Well, it's completely insane. <laughs> I mean, uh, with all due respect to Justice O'Connor, that doesn't actually work. There's a such thing as racial weight. Certain actions are always about intimidating certain people. There's whether no way or not around the that. trees
0: falling in the woods. Whether or not the it tree's fell. In the woods. Yeah. And again,
1: the people who are going off in the woods to burn across are white supremacists. Like there's there's well, no. Well, they're way... refining
0: it for the for the suburban front yard.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and that's how you end up with Trump voters. But I guess the part of the problem here is that. The difficulty is what do we say to the people who think there's nothing really wrong with the burning of a cross. We explain to them the history of the use of that imagery as part of America's oldest domestic terrorist organization the yeah. Ku Klux Klan. You explain that the the cross is used when bombing and when lynching was happening. You explain that whole history. You explain how that history is work into the present day you explain the rash of bias crimes against african americans and other groups of color that are still endemic in american society today and once you explain all that then you have that person suggest that there's something innocent about a burning cross
0: or not innocent but benign i mean benign benign, but but because i'm sure they think innocent but benign meaning no no one was harmed but it but they are because it's It's sort of organizing around that trial, that dress rehearsal in the woods.
1: It all goes back to the same problem. If we end up with racial voting, if we end up with tribal voting, you're going to end up with the inability of a body politic to really deal with each other. I need to have African-American politicians win statewide offices, not just in majority minority districts, because there's no way you're going to have people of color actually deal with some of our criminal justice concerns, some of our economic concerns, some of the poverty concerns that still animate this place without having us actually working together to solve those problems.
0: So as we wind down the interview, I know um, we're going to we're going to take up some more of this at a later date. We have a rebuttal that Stacey Abrams will deliver at the end of this the State of the Union address this evening. So we know that, back to what you're saying, the party apparatus is going to give Stacey Abrams some hard structural kinds of directions, not advice. She's going to get directions from what she's going to, because she's speaking for the Democratic Party. So I guess it's probably your 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 worst nightmare that, Here's an amazing platform she has, but will she be compromised? So let's make that the last question, and I'll make sure everybody in the podcast summary gets to see all of the reading list from this today's discussion. But what, what? Let's say you have a chance to advise Stacey Abrams. You, I mean, the Democratic apparatus has already told her what she has to do. You're the last one to talk to her before she goes out there to do a rebuttal. What, what will you tell her?
1: I would say to Stacey Abrams, your job is to convince people who aren't like you. Your job is to make people understand that it's not that you are or are not a threat. You speak for their interests, too. People living in Appalachia, people living in rural Georgia have the same concerns. They're both people who have been undercut by a capitalist system that has not worked for them. With more job training, with more opportunities for advancement, all of our poor in, in this society can actually thrive. The question is, will they be able to vote effectively enough to actually make that happen? That's where you excoriate Democrats, Stacey, and tell them that if they don't work on issues involving voter suppression and gerrymandering, we won't be able to elect Democrats in large enough proportion to actually make the changes we need in this society.
0: Are you hopeful that you'll get out 89 percent of that?
1: Well, I know that the Bernie bros will still be listening to Bernie Sanders, who can't help but make another address to the State of the Union again in the third year in a row. So there's still going to be a racial dissension in the Democratic Party we have to address.
0: Well, I would love to be able to take this up where we're leaving off now. I know there's so much more. James Lamb, I really, really want to thank you for being on Ask a Leader today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: My guest was UCI second-year law student James Lamb. This is a most weighted and most-needed conversation about how power is addressed for everyone, every constituent in this country, with race in R as the main serving for um, this discussion. Thanks again. Thank you. We'll be right back with Ani Zonefeld in advance of Sunday's celebration of life taking place in Los Angeles. Stay tuned. Thanks for staying tuned. Returning to Ask a Leader is my next guest, Ani Zonefeld, just ahead of Sunday's Celebration of Life. It's the fourth annual. Ani is founder and president of Muslims for Progressive Values, a faith-based grassroots international human rights organization that embodies and advocates for the traditional chronic values of social justice and equality for all. Uh, for the 21st century. Anis presided over Muslims for Progressive Values Expansion to include chapters and affiliates in 12 countries and 19 cities. She's organized inter- numerous interfaith arts and music festivals, participated in many interfaith dialogues. I've heard them. She's amazing in the vigor and the charm uh, that she possesses engaging people all over the, the dogma <laughs> of, that you can imagine. She's contributed to many forwards and numerous anthologies, appeared on Huffington Post, Open Democracy, Al Jazeera, and is known for her TEDx talk entitled Islam as American as Apple Pie. She once again comes to us from Los Angeles to talk about the very special fourth annual celebration of life. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Ani Zonefeld.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So this year's annual celebration uh, event, one of the things that you're going to be getting done, it's related to theocracy operating in Saudi Arabia and Iran as examples. Tell us Ani, how you see America creeping toward this uh, theocracy, despite our constitutional protections separating yeah, religion and exactly. state?
2: So, by highlighting the human rights abuses in the name of religion in Saudi Arabia and uh, in Iran, uh, we are going to basically connect to what's happening to the United States, and then challenging those uh, in attendance. Say, look. Theocracy does not work. Look at these two countries as an example. Why are we in the United States creeping towards theocracy? And we have certain um, uh, certain legislators that are voted into office based on their particular uh, interpretation of Christianity, and uh, they are voted in based on what they have promised to legislate. And we have seen how uh, human rights um, have been being undermined women's reproductive rights, LGBT rights, trans rights. And this is being done in the context of religion um, and how religion is being used now, the Religious Freedom Act, to justify discrimination in the name of religion. And it's really appalling.
0: So this year, you have quite an amazing roster of honorees. And I guess with the time we have, it's limited time to cover everything to do justice to it, but honoring for uh, the well uh, the high profile PowerCon couple. Tell us about how you're going to be honoring the gold star parents of the fallen American oh, Muslim. I
2: sad to say they had to cancel because um, there's health issues, and so he is not allowed to fly. So we are postponing his uh, his um, his presence for next year. But what we are honoring is we're honoring um, the president of Tunisia for his incredible yes. women's initiatives, the Equal Inheritance for Women and Girls in the Muslim World, uh, for Women and men in the Muslim world. And this has global repercussions in a positive way. Uh, you know, when women earn and they can have their uh, their own um, uh, self-determination to conduct business and own property, they raise not just their family but also their community up. And there is statistics that there is a, in, um, an inverse correlation between women earning income and domestic violence and violence against women in general. So we are really highlighting his initiative and, of course, the Islamists are against this because they claim it's against Islam whereas you know we are on the side of the president says no 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 what he's doing is true to the essence of Islam if you say Islam is about justice then this is justice if if there's anything this is justice so that's how we're pushing it um
0: you're also honoring the Iranian journalist I'm going to uh, let you say the names so I don't mess Uh, them up uh,
2: Uh, Alina Jad is her last name So Masih uh, Alina Jad And she was basically the woman That campaigned against the right To not wear the hijab in Iran It's a matter of choice And because of that obviously She was jailed, tortured and uh, gone through that ringer, um, and uh, we are honoring the 16 um, uh, Saudi women sitting in jail uh, for advocating uh, to lift the ban uh, for driving, the right to vote, and all these gender-related issues—the lifting of the the guardianship laws—and unfortunately, um, this fancy MBS young crown prince has claimed to be Oof. the liberal. Um, claiming that he it is, is, is all his idea. Um, so he lifted the ban, but, however, threw all these women in jail. And Ed, this is also personal because I have friends sitting in jail. Um, oh. So we want to highlight this. And this is being done by way of poetry and music. Um, so it's a really lovely evening that is going to be very endearing. And I promise your audience that you're going to come out of it um, feeling re- rejuvenated, rejuvenated. Um, in, in in faith for humanity and, and the good work that's being done there in the Muslim world. And this is just as important as what's going on here in America. And, you know, the the, the misogyny, is, it's just across the board, right? So yeah. what's happening in the United States, like child marriage and forced marriage and FGM, female genital mutilation and cutting, it's happening in the United States. And so we're going to be highlighting these issues as well. So that's being done in the name of religion, which is which is really unacceptable um, and misplaced. So we are really connecting the, the issues between the global and the local.
0: For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Ani Zonnefeld of Muslims for Progressive Values in advance of their fourth annual Celebration of Life this year, hosted in Los Angeles at the Harmony Gold Theater in Hollywood. We're talking about this year's honorees. There is Mahmoud Taha, the Sudanese engineer, author, and reformer.
2: Yes. So Mahmouda is a Sudanese, and he was killed by the government in the 80s. And here is someone who basically wanted separation of religion and state, who advocated for women's rights. Um, for freedom of expression and freedom of and from religion and belief. So he was really ahead of his time yes. um, for the country. And still in Sudan, we see the, the recent upheaval that's going on. So th- this, this oppression and dictatorship of Bashir has been going on, and his government has been going on for a long time. Um, and yeah, Bashir has been uh, indicted for war crimes. So that's what's going on. <laughs> you know, I yeah. think it's unfortunate in the Muslim world, those who are liberal, those who are like me and our organization, those who are advocating for basic human rights, are really jailed, tortured, or killed. And we want to highlight that because a lot of times Americans have no clue that there are some really good Muslims doing good works in the Muslim world. Well, so that's I, not what we hear.
0: So yeah. I wanted to sort of tweak a little bit when you self-describe as uh, as liberal. How about, though, that you're... Uh, it's a progressive, it's an, an a secular interpretation of what Islam is for people to understand. There's, there's so much going. There's so much more to understand.
2: Yeah, so it's very simple. When, um, when the Muslim countries or Sharia law. Um, claims that child marriage is acceptable because Prophet Muhammad married Aisha who was nine years old, supposedly. That also has been debunked. Well we say, how can this be Sharia law if Sharia law contradicts the Qur'an? When the Qur'an says marriage is between two consenting adults of sound mind. So we basically debunk a lot of this Sharia law, which is a hundred percent man-made construct. Um and we interpret the Quran from from the lens of human rights and from the lens of justice. And if Quran is very clear, it's you know, it's repeated so many times the word justice, justice, justice. And how can you claim Islam is justice if your actual practice in Sharia law is injustice? So that's the lens from which we come from. It's quite easy.
0: Yeah. I mean that <laughs> that's what's so refreshing to hear Anip. Um, present this this aspect of Islam for um, since it's it's sort of been codified in sort of very absolute terms and nuances. Yeah. Well, it's kind of dead in the in the, in the, tw- the thing, and,
2: and then it's remarkable. Most Muslims, and therefore, I don't blame non non-Muslims. Most Muslims don't know that Sharia law is a man-made construct. They think it's God's law, but that's because we've been lied to for centuries. We are not educated in the in in the real terms of what it is, and that's the problem.
0: A convenient tool.
2: Yes. Yeah. So,
0: how can people make sure they are a part of? Sunday's event. Give us those details.
2: Right. So, um, go to Eventbrite page or go to our website mpvusa.org, and there's a link right there on the front page of our website to the event that Eventbrite page to buy your tickets and all the program is there. Um, there's going to be some, you know, celebrities, some millennial celebrities also doing presentations. So, it's, 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 we're really trying to tap in into the youth. Um, and students, there are special student tickets, um, that are more affordable. And um, and I just hope that people come. It's February tenth, three thirty to five, and it's going to be a fantastic event. And do come,
0: or people can stay a little longer. There's a little reception still. So for yeah, the, the, for the and it'll be the, nice.
2: It'll be nice to be able to talk to exactly. everyone. exactly talk to everyone that's presenting, and there'll be food and drinks as well.
0: Because it's it's the intentional aspect. The quality of that is is a very positive. Making kind of disposition there for all of us to take away from there. so I, I really am glad.
2: And I look forward to seeing you too. Oh,
0: I am looking most forward to it. Well, Ani, we, I always manage to put a big guest, a long topic right ahead of you, and I'm always squeezing you in. So I owe you like about a three-quarter hour show uh, about that. And we're well. This is what we're going to do. We're going to talk about how hopeful you are the next time you're on after last November's 2018 Parliament of World Religions in Toronto. We'll talk about that. How about it? Yeah. Okay, Ani. Uh, thank you so much. Ani Zonfeld is the founder of the Muslims for Progressive Values, bringing the fourth annual celebration of life to us. Coming up this next this Sunday uh, in Hollywood. We're one month away from the special election to fill the third district of the Orange County Board of Supervisors. Um, It's going to be on March 12th. Uh, You're back in the voting booth, those of you that are where we're uh, located. I'm busy securing interviews for as many of the candidates as we can. And when watching tonight's State of the Union address and the rebuttals afterward, props from this host for putting your critical thinking cap on securely. That was my wrap. Next week, among other guests, will be Kathy Orlinski, Citizens for Climate Change, And she's going to be talking about her meeting. She's going to convene in Los Angeles at the end of this month. So we'll give you all sorts of details to be participating in that. Thanks for listening, everyone. Talk to you next week.